So Third Love has been a sponsor of the show for a while. They are one of the sponsors for whom I get fan mail. I am not kidding. On Instagram and on uh, Twitter, people message me or at me or whatever, telling me that they love their third love bras. Literally, literally, literally last week, um, someone told a story about how she forgot she was wearing her bra. Like, just like the ad says, I am right now at this moment wearing a third love bra. They are incredibly comfortable. It probably has to do with their Fit Finder, which is based on over 10 million women's answers. The copy here says it's fun. I don't know if it's fun. It's kind of amusing. And also it's better than like some stranger lady's cold hands touching you in your places where you don't want to necessarily be touched. Uh, Third Love offers cup sizes from A through H, bands up to 48 and they offer half cup sizes. I think they're the only brand, they are the only brand to do so. So Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. Right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com friends to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com friends for 15% off today. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox and welcome to With Friends Like These. And my usual intro is to say where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us, but it's the day after the midterms. Uh, You'll be hearing this on Friday or the week after the midterms, but I am too tired to try and do the thing where I I keep things current or don't acknowledge uh, relative time. So I'm acknowledging it because I'm tired, um, because I'm still processing, and my guest this week was also tired and still processing. Rebecca Tracer, the author of Good and Mad and Friend of the Pod. Uh, she and I processed in real time the results from Tuesday night's election. And this is the only introduction you're going to get. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. So I told you when I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today, white women. Let's white talk women. about white women. What's, what's more fun than talking about white women? <laughs> What do you think? There's a lot of people angry at white women yeah. today. Yeah, they're angry at white women for a long time, going way back. Yes. As long as white women have been engaged <laughs> politically, there have been good reasons to be angry at them. Should we make clear why people are angry? Yes, just in, just in we case. Just well, some, in case. There, well, there's we should people also listening. say that the, the numbers that I have seen so far yeah. are based on exit polling. Um, and I, I've seen them mostly, I think, CNN exit polls. Mm-hmm. Um one of them is such an awful number that there is, there might be the defensive white lady part of me that's like, that can't be real, even though I know. Is it like the of, 90% something? Or is oh, like no, a, I haven't seen it. No, nine, that was men. Sorry, that was white men. 90% like ni- white men, I think. No, this is the, the number that I saw that I was like, oh, that my eyes popped out of my head. And I am pretty used to seeing bad yeah. numbers for white women and how they vote was 76% of white women voting for Brian Kemp in Georgia. And the thing that was so eye-popping... And it was actually Nicole Hannah-Jones who first pointed this out that I saw on Twitter. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I don't know that I've seen that before. Is that the percentage was higher than white men in that exit poll. It showed 73% of white men voting for Brian Kemp over Stacey Abrams and 76% of white women. That is a, that's a number that is so bad that, that it, it shocked me. And I'm not typically shocked by the news that white women vote for conservative politics for the Republican Party and fundamentally for white patriarchal power structures. That is the story of white women politically. As long as we've been counting in the contemporary sense since 1952, 
white women have voted Republican with two exceptions. One was 1992, when a majority of them did vote for Bill Clinton in the presidential election. The important asterisk there is that Bill Clinton ran a campaign in which he was quite explicitly tough on crime and left the campaign trail um, to go kill someone. To go kill Ricky Ray Rector, to yeah. execute Ricky Ray Rector in Arkansas, a black man in Arkansas. Um, so there were all a, kinds of— A black of, man who was developmentally disabled, I believe, also. He was, although actually—now, I'm not going to get this right. I'm not even sure he was developmentally disabled. He may have sustained an injury that yes, left him— right. Um, mentally disabled. Mentally yeah. disabled. Yeah. Um, it was terrible. Yeah. It was grotesque. And and it was an explicitly, um, uh, you know, racist messaging uh, that Bill Clinton was employing um, during, during that, and that he had the sister soldier moment. I mean, that he ran a campaign that was quite explicit in its racial messages. And those racial messages were... Uh, racist, to put yeah. no finer point on it. And he won white women. And then in 1996, the other exception to the majority of white women vote for Republicans um, in presidential years, uh, I think like 8% of white women voted for Ross Perot, which <laughs> is the, the other, you know, exception. So, um, and we Who know- did not run a racially... Uh, you know, untinged, if we we're going to use that language, campaign right. himself. Right. I know. Like, this, is the, this is the problem. Like, usually I actually do. Racially untinged. The right, language right. is so usually hard. Usually when I describe <laughs> the Clinton campaign, I say, you know, racially charged. Or, but now I'm so allergic to all that kind yeah. of language because I see it so much in mainstream media as they write about Donald Trump, who's racist, that I now am trying to stop myself from using, you know, racially freighted. No, racist is what I'm trying to say. So yeah. anyway. Um, but so there, there's this long history. And in fact, you know, lots of people were sort of shocked into acknowledgement of this pattern in 2016, because according to exit polls, um, 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. And there was a kind of expectation not grounded in reality or history that they were going to vote for Hillary Clinton because she was a white woman. That was not, there was actually not a lot of precedent that would lead you to believe that, but it was a kind of commonly held misperception. Um, in fact, white women voted more democratically in, in 2016 than they had in 2012, for example, when 56% of them, according to the exit polls, voted for Mitt Romney. So there is a very long history of white women voting for conservative um, politics um, and in line with white their, their with, with white men, with, with whiteness and um, with white patriarchal Policies and the and it extends further back Be, before 1952. We can look at the way that arguments for uh, women suffrage were made by white women suffragists. Not all of them, but many of them. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the arguments made, you know, over the course of that you know 90 year campaign to get the 19th Amendment, which of course only enfranchised um, some women. Uh, a lot of the the arguments were about how if white women were granted the vote, but this comes especially after the 14th and 15th Amendment that enfranchised black men, um, the 15th Amendment enfranchised black men, that uh, white women's votes would cancel out the votes and of black men. And you know men. what? Yeah. It was correct. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there was, you know, I've been writing a lot about white women and talking a lot about white women. Um, and the kind of incentives that are in place in all kinds of directions for them to 
support and defend uh, white patriarchy, um, and with it the sort of contemporary party that upholds white patriarchal power structures, and that's the modern Republican Party. Um, and, you know, I, and I'm keenly aware of the fact that I am a white woman, a white feminist, and uh, a lot of the women who have been newly, I've been, I've been newly radicalized, or maybe not so newly awakened? Newly awakened. Um, Maybe on the journey fre- to being radicalized. Freshly, Let's hope. Freshly engaged. <laughs> yes. There are all kinds of euphemisms. Because <laughs> they aren't quite over. There's a hump they aren't quite over. Well, some of them. I mean, this is, the, the, here's the, the one place where I do, um, where I, where I find myself optimistic. And I think yeah. that there's a, I think that there's a, it's not optimistic about the behaviors of white women as a demographic. Um, and in fact, that's a crucial distinction because I've been asked a lot over the past few weeks and months, like, what are white women going to do? Are they going to change how they vote? And I actually haven't thought that they would. There's always a little hope. I mean, maybe it's the, maybe it's the white woman in me <laughs> that wants to hope that, because sometimes they're close enough to, to 50% that you think, well, if you could just move that, you know, three or 4%, you could get, you could get to a majority voting democratic. But honestly, history doesn't tell us that that there was a lot of hope for that. The, the part that I am interested in that I think is distinct from the question of how will white women as a demographic vote is there is this swath of white women who have probably been amongst the democratic voters um, for a while, but who had not been politically energized, Mm -hmm. had not been activists, had not been engaged in protest or in organizing or in electoral politics in any sort of vocal or energetic way. And there, there is a segment of white women who have been brought into civic and political engagement in a really quite powerful way over the past couple of years. And there are all kinds of dynamics related to their engagement that are worth considering. Um, But it is is true that this percentage of of white women, um, some of them are really interested in acknowledging the degree to which white supremacy um, creates incentives for them and advantages and privileges. And and they're interested in confronting um, white womanhood as problematic within a progressive coalition and within a, certainly within a feminist um, coalition and a women's movement. So that is another dynamic that is happening at the same time. But it, it's to ask, to think about how those women are operating is a different question than will white women vote better? Right. I've been reading a lot about identity politics from a social science point of view. Mm. Um, uh, Identity Crisis, a new book out. I recommend Jen Side's book. And one of the more interesting kind of like anthropological uh, findings I've seen is that when given cross-cutting identities, Mm -hmm. it's human nature basically to identify with the more powerful one. Right, of course, yeah. Uh, Even if that choice will be to your detriment Mm – further on, right? right? And this is most commonly probably seen in the what's the matter with Kansas mm-hmm. formulation. Yeah. We've thought about it a lot. I think Democrats have thought about it a lot in terms of social uh, conservatism right. and uh, how how do you, how, why do these blue-collar voters vote against their best interests, financial best interests? This kind of explains white women too, right? Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's funny because one formulation that people always use about white women is, um, you know, is about internalized misogyny or a false consciousness or or voting against their best interests. And on the one level, 
That is true. They are voting against their best interests, sort of economically in terms of the kinds of policies that would help them. Um, But they're also voting... It's not quite true to say that they're voting against their best interests if they're fundamentally voting for white supremacy. And I think that that... And both things can be true. You can... They can be um, enjoying... (laughs) the privileges and be very attached to defending the privileges of white supremacy at the very same. And they can, in that process, be defending patriarchy and feel very warmly about patriarchal structures that they, many of them will say, they feel quite sure will protect them. And that, in fact, there was a story in the New York Times the week before the midterms about the white women in who are, who are Trump devotees, and many of them use the language, the kind of protectionist language of, I feel like Donald Trump will protect me. I feel like I'll be safe. Um, Of course, one of the revelations of this period, and it shouldn't be a revelation, um, is that, of course, whiteness does not protect women within a white patriarchy from oppression, subjugation, harassment, and assault. I mean, this is this is the lesson of Christine Blasey Ford, Um, the lesson of the the wealthy and powerful white actresses, some of whom accused Harvey Weinstein and others of sexual assault and harassment. Um, It's the story of Hillary Clinton, you know. (laughs) I appreciate you pushing back on the idea that it's against Mm self-interest because I also think that's a problem with the what's the matter with Kansas formulation because those people that are voting for socially conservative candidates that might do financial policies against their uh, very specific financial interests are getting something out of it. Right. Right. Um, and women are getting something out of voting with, you know, candidates that will support the patriarchy. Um, individually, they might get something out of it. Absolutely. You and I can talk about, oh, long term and against their interests in this in this very like justice for all kind of way. Sure. There are policies that we can agree, that we can agree, especially as as progressives economic policy, social policy that would benefit, by the way, not just those white women, but many of the working class white men. This is the what's the right. matter with Kansas, right? We can we can sit here and talk about how supporting the party that supports, or one would hope supports single-payer health care, um, you know, higher wages, a, a greater social safety net, how all of those policies are fundamentally good for vulnerable Americans of all kinds of every yes. stripe <laughs> right including the working class white voters who are um who continue to be firmly attached to Donald Trump and the Republican Party but you are correct that there is something else um that that white voters are getting in rejecting those kinds of policies how do we want to describe the thing that they're getting is it just having their pleasure center tickled by feelings of superiority. I mean, there's a part of me that feels like there's something that's a kind of simple story, which is the one that I've experienced at Trump rallies, mm. which is the emotional uplift of feeling feeling your whiteness in a superior way. Yeah. Like all of my other problems kind of fade into the background when I'm part of this group that this man is telling me how special I am. He's complimenting my genes. Right. And and telling me that my status, that my status should be higher. Yes. My status should be greater. My share should be bigger. Um, and that in fact, in promising a return, 
to a kind of great America, situating white Americans as the Ur Americans, even though they're like with a complete lack of acknowledgement that in fact, you know, all and that and it ties into every bit of xenophobia and racism, um, every vilification of of you know immigrants and the caravan and gang members and Mexican rapists and all the things that all the people out there, Islamophobia, um, there's a there's a sense that that the country belongs to you in a way, if you are white, that and that's offered up by a Republican Party, again, not just Donald Trump. Yeah, you're right, you're right. And it's also become the distinction between the Republican Party and Trump has, right. has officially disappeared. Right, well, and it should have, I mean, this is yeah. this is who Sarah Palin is talking, and talk about a white yeah. woman, this is who Sarah Palin is talking to in 2008 and 2010 as she's leading the Mama Grizzlies, the white women who are aggressively and angrily fighting on behalf of a further right move of a Republican Party via the Tea Party. Um, and she is talking then about real Americans. It's a, you know, that is... The code is, words are the code, but familiar. This is, they're, they're also barely code, yeah. right? <laughs> and the sort of, the authenticity of a patriotic identity and thus an ownership over a country where the the messages that are being supplied also by a sort of, a, by a right-wing media and simply you know, living in a world in which there have been some minimal expansions of opportunity for people who are not white, um, and especially during an Obama era in which the view that this singular event of electing a black man president was a sign of, you know, power being ripped out of the hands of white America. Um, I think that all this kind of affirmative, you're the real Americans, um, your, we'll, your share should be greater. Should be greater. In fact, that the hardships the that story you're experiencing, is your story. right, the hardships that you're experiencing in your, you know, joblessness, um, low wages, uh, lack of access to health care, um, it's not about the fact that this very party that's supplying you with these messages have has redistributed... <laughs> Um, everything into the hands of a tiny percentage of people at the top. That's not why you're experiencing these hardships. It's not because we've ripped away every portion of of a of a safety net or or economic structure that would better support you. It's because other people have come in and taken your country from you. I've been waiting for Framebridge to come up again in the rotation because I have a another actual this really happened story, which is I. We had a family reunion a couple weeks ago, and it was in Fort Worth. We all went to see TCU lose to Oklahoma, and that was sad. But my entire family, except for me, went to TCU, and we took a bunch of pictures on the campus. It was great. You know, made a little album on Facebook. And then I got home, and I told everyone I was going to send them prints from Framebridge. And it was just incredibly easy to do, and it turned what had been kind of just a nice let's snap some photos a moment into a gift and like just a tangible, you know, memory of this time that we got together. We don't get together that much. So Framebridge is awesome for a lot of reasons, but honestly, the reason I like it is it makes it quick and easy to be thoughtful to the people around you. I think we take Instagram and Facebook, the, those photos, we take them for granted. They're such a part of our lives. Um, they can be, They can be more than that. And Framebridge does more than photos. Um, I've had uh, documents framed by them as well. 
If you want to do a photo, just go to framebridge.com, upload the photo. Or if you have something else, uh, a non-digital photo, or like I said, a document or like a thing, they will send you the packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. You can preview your order online in any frame style. You can choose your favorites or get free recommendations from the talented designers. The expert team at Framebridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece straight to you or wherever you need it. A complete handmade personalized gift from Framebridge starts at $39, is delivered in days, and all shipping is free. Plus, my listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use the offer code FRIENDS. Not going to lie, I use my own offer code. So with just a few taps on the phone, Framebridge lets you create one-of-a-kind gifts that will win Christmas and make someone happy for years to come. Go to framebridge.com and use the promo code FRIENDS. You'll save that additional 15% off your first order. Go to framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So the question then becomes, how do you interrupt that story? Mm. I almost feel bad for asking that question because that is the question that I feel a lot of pundits and journalists asked each other and asked Trump voters, you know, for years now, mm -hmm. for two years, because the question has been like, how do we get these people to be less racist? And I don't know if that's actually the future of the country. Neither do I. And in part because I don't know that it's ever been our past. And one of the, and the, when, whenever we talk about this and whenever a political media talks about this, it's, and, and maybe I'm even guilty of it for sort of being like, whoa, it goes as far back as Sarah Palin. Well, no, it goes as far back as there were European as defining, here. As defining slavery and race into, is, is the, using race as, to define slavery. As, as using race to define slavery, the genocide of the native population yeah. on these shores, the, um, this is the question of, it's not how do we make this country less racist, it's how do we reckon with the racism of this country? And this has been, to me, the my view of both the history of the politics that I cover, 
the present political moment and the project moving forward. These questions are the core story that has been existed in many different chapters and different iterations. This is the fight. This is what the the midterms. I, I wrote a piece about this actually. So to to me, sum up these two central questions that have been swirling since the founding, at the founding, in advance of the founding, questions of representation, who represents, who, what, is, what does representational government mean in a country that was born in fury at a lack of representative government, and then went about creating a government that did not represent its population? Um, representation is one key question, and enfranchisement is the other. Again, again, a, a nation that was born on the premise and the promise of of democracy, liberty, and inclusion. And no taxation without representation. No taxation is without literally representation. the rallying cry right. of our country. That is literally the birth <laughs> story. And then the and then the founding documents that we revere in this country are are based on cutting out certain populations as not not citizens not fully human um and and not permitted to be part of this civic the, 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 this promised project and wringing of, out all the labor and all the property not only wringing out building the yeah. nation's strength on the labor of in of an enslaved population that is not fully considered and human and the property of a native population the property of a native population and the domestic the unpaid domestic labor of an unenfranchised population that does not have legal rights and that's that's the women <laughs> <laughs> including the white ladies right and so i I kind of want to answer my own question here or, or say the thing that I felt like I, I implied, which is that the question isn't how do we get these people to be less racist? The question is how do we build the coalition and enfranchise right. the coalition that's the- that will take power away from the people that are racist? And I will tell you that the first person that I had this conversation with in a kind of practical nuts and bolts way, and it wasn't about white women specifically. It was about kind of centrist voters. And I had this conversation with her, I'm going to say two or three years ago with Stacey Abrams. And I remember because she for years had been working on the side. Sad face. But, you know, let me tell you, Stacey Abrams campaign in Georgia was a magnificent thing. I will probably go to my grave believing that she won. Oh, no, no, wait, (laughs) wait, wait. Yeah. Let me be clear. Yeah. That election was stolen. Yes, it's it was stolen. And this is the, the questions yeah. of enfranchisement and whether we can... And the very questions that I'm going to recall talking about with her a couple years ago are the questions that um, probably may mean, although she, as of now, she's still pushing for a recount, and I hope that she gets one because I do believe that she got more votes and had more support, and it's 100% clear that that was the case, um, and was running against, like, Truly one of the cartoon-level villains of our time in Brian Kemp, Stacy was the person who spoke to me in a very nuts-and-bolts way um, several years ago about this strategic question. Okay, so you have—you're part of a progressive coalition. Is that the Democratic Party? Is it activists? Where do you spend your capital? Where do you spend your money? Is it in trying to persuade active voters who kind of hang out in the middle and are hard to—and are are tough to sway? Or do you spend that capital trying to go to the people who are your natural base, the people who are— but who've never been reached out to before, who've never been um, approached, have never been taken seriously 
have never really been offered the franchise, even if they are could legally be enfranchised. They've ne- no party has approached them. No politician has knocked on their doors. No one's gone and, and said to them, we'd like you to be a voter and we'd like you to participate in this process. And of course, Stacey Abrams' approach to this uh, through the New Georgia Project was the enfranchisement over a period of years of hundreds of thousands of black voters, many of them rural voters, many of them poor, who had never had contact with the parties, with the electoral system, who'd never been really, to go back to my, considered fully human by an electoral system. And who, for good reason, felt no compulsion no, right. to participate no in No attachment it. to like, it. Like, why, sh- why should I, right. you know, be a part of this system that has right. so clearly told me I am not welcome, I don't count, you know, and you need to reach out to those voters and make them a part of the system right. and tell them why and in a way that engages and activates and doesn't, like, just reiterate the messages of, you know, lack of power. Right. But the but that project yeah. of reaching out, fundamentally trying to expand an electorate, is, though it should be completely in line with our national self-image and sensibility, is antithetical to the work of the party that claims to revere the founding promises, right? right? And so, in fact, the expansion of the electorate is the thing most feared by Republicans and also by, I mean, Republicans insofar as they support the power of the kinds of people who historically were granted power from the start. Oh, and also they will tell you. I mean, like Brian Kemp said, you know, that he he's worried about people voting. Right. It's not as, you right. know, they this is no secret. It's not a secret, secret at, all. at all. I want to point out before before you get to right, I, I think Stacey Abrams is a leader in this regard. And again, she is the rightful governor of, of, mm-hmm. of Georgia. But the expansion of the voting bloc uh, of the pool of voters was also the project of Beto O'Rourke. Yes, and exactly. Andrew Gillum. Yeah. And they, if I am going to move to another country, perhaps, if the lesson that Democrats take from the midterms is not to run progressive candidates in the South. I, I will, certainly, it is, it would be a bananas lesson to take. They've it's, done stupider shit. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm like, that would be dumb. Why, why would, why would the Democratic Party do something dumb? <laughs> It's unimaginable to me. But I already, so I had I had the like privilege slash horror of being a part of the sausage getting made, yeah. you know, and seeing conventional wisdom <gasps> oh, unfold I've, I've, before you. I also have heard, I have been part of some of that recently and I'm just like, <gasps> I just, I wanted oh. to like, I, I, I literally oh. was in my seat. I was actually, what I literally did, I wish I had had the guts to just like d- dive into the conversation, but instead I'm like texting the producer, like, I need to talk about this. I need to talk about this. I need to because the fucking split decision, America's divided. Oh, it's you so, know. well, this is, and, and, you know, I was listening. So last night, well, I, I don't know if we're to say last night, because this is, nah, on Tuesday, on Tuesday People night, smart. I actually <laughs> made a series of decisions based on my own uh, well-being. Yeah. <laughs> um, to stay home and watch. Right. Um, and so I was watching some of the... Sausage making? Sausage making. Like, you know, and just... As, By sausage owners, let's say. <laughs> By sausage owners. A number of them, yeah. <laughs> it is amazing. People really, we talk sausages. about all these people talking about, like, a diverse <laughs> array of candidates. And I'm like, diverse, you say? 
<laughs> I had this moment when someone talked about how we'd elected a really diverse Congress and also elected a bunch of veterans. And I was like, those are the same people. Right. <laughs> I know, right, right. Like all this, a bunch of the veterans right. that got elected or I, people are, of color. Diverse people. <laughs> I <And> women. <laughs> not like you who probably does And that, then right? there was like this thing about, and then there was like this weird thing about like how veterans like have this like a sense of honor and, and loyalty to the country and they will might maybe do something in Congress. I'm like, did you just make that distinction between veterans and diverse people in terms of like who has respect for the country oh and God. who feels really. I have like, a headache. I'm, you just, I just, I just got a headache. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but so, so I'm explaining though, like the Democratic Party, if they make this decision, they'll make it in concert with a media oh, that has perfectly just, eager to do it. The other thing got said is like a bunch of like fucking like almost literally chin stroking. I think someone might have literally stroked his chin as he said <laughs> yeah. this, which is like, but who will unite us? Oh, we're a divided country, but who will unite us? Oh God. And I was like, fuck. Well, why should? I mean, for what? Tell me, because they were like, they, they were like, well, maybe Trump will, you know. He'll be chastened by the loss of the house, and perhaps he'll he'll reach out and do an infrastructure bill, let's say. <laughs> the thing is, the inability to acknowledge context or the inability to acknowledge context, history, or just some basic—you show me who has gotten closer to winning Texas as a Democrat than Beto O'Rourke. You show me who—I mean, Stacey Abrams— I, again, we agree. Rightful governor. Won the state of Georgia. And nothing but respect for my governor. Right. Exactly. <laughs> no, she did. It is so abundantly clear that Stacey Abrams had more support. That does not mean that I believe she will be the governor right. of Georgia, but Stacey Abrams. More people voted. Won an election that should have made her the very first African American woman governor in this country's history. Now, there is a great chance that she will not serve as governor, at least right now, in Georgia. But you show me the person who could have done better. I mean, it, that person, that Democrat in Georgia, I'm not sure exists mm -hmm. in this moment. There was this setup by the media. There is such, the, I mean, I just was looking at the chart that had done, that did the sort of um, mainstream media, who leans right, who leans left. I don't know if you saw this. It was the morning shows. It was like you, it, it's so depressing because okay. it's, you know, you know the answer is that like your mainstream media actually has more right wing content on it than Fox News. I mean, in, in, its, in its sort of weekend news shows, you know, and the degree to which there's sort of no acknowledgement of the circumstances. So it was built up that in order for there to be a wave, it was that Democrats had to take the Senate. Something and that had was, to win and had to win those governorships. Like, and this had was to win those, to, those yeah. unlikely governorships. Yeah. In states and Senate, I mean, it had in, to be, they were supposed to, in order to be for it to really be a blue wave, it was going to have to be fucking like, right? Not and they were going to recount the electoral college, right? Like, it was entirely <laughs> right. It was an the entirely bar was set. and also Trump so, wouldn't be president yep, the next that's day. That's what right? I mean. Right? Like, yes, it's just exactly, like, exactly. They would, Superman would fly around the globe right. backwards. And that's like, a blue wave. <laughs> that's a blue wave. <laughs> that's a blue wave right there. I didn't see a blue wave last night. Um, but this is so so. If you had said to Democrats a week after 2016, in two years, your party will take back the House, defeat Pete Sessions, Chris Kobach, Scott Walker, win a House seat in Oklahoma, win 
I mean, it, it, in franchise, 1.5 million the biggest former incarcerated people in Florida enact automatic registration in two states, expand Medicaid in three <laughs> red states. Right? Uh, is it? Is it? Did they take over seven House districts? Flip, set, flip. I mean, not House districts. Flip seven state legislatures and break up supermajorities. I believe in three more. Elect two Muslim women. Uh, two Native American women, including in Kansas, a Native American lesbian MMA fighter. <laughs> in Kansas. That's right. That's right. Uh, elect Massachusetts's first African-American woman to the House. Elect more than 100 women to the House and governor's mansions. Mm-hmm. A record number. A record number of them women of color. If you had said that to Democrats, I'll, do, I'll just I'll say, say an uh, increased youth turnout and, and turnout by people of color by unheard of margins. Turnout was it 114 million voters? And again, youth voters in Texas. This is so important. 500 percent increase mm-hmm. in turnout. Like, right. If you had said this to the mainstream yeah. media that was telling us this time two years ago. Well, I think we've seen a change in the direction that this country wants to go. If you've been like, okay, two years from now, we're gonna we're gonna tell you what's gonna happen, they would have. I mean, I know what they would have done because I went back when I wrote my book and and described how they talked about the women's march first of all, and you know, a lot of so many of the women, not only who are running for office, but who were doing the work of supporting those women and men who were running for office. There was such a great piece by Anne Helen Peterson about the women in Texas who were doing so much of the labor for Beto O'Rourke's campaign and doing the organizing and the selling of the T-shirts and the pavement pounding and the volunteering. And um, it was it was such a terrific piece. And those women have been such an army of electoral workers, volunteers, organizers, protesters, strikers. There's been so much done by those women to make these victories that we saw on Tuesday possible. And yet, if you go back to the way that that very mainstream media talked about the Women's March, um, the morning after the Women's March, I went back and I watched those shows. I'm like flinching in in anticipation. You want to know? You want to know the details? Because I have it's, they're in my book. Yeah. So, so the Women's March, the Women's March happens, and there is a, a lot of um, internal dissent over again the white ladies and the appropriation of. Um, political rage in the wake of Trump after 53% of them, according to the exit polls, had voted for him, the appropriation of the name of the the Million Women's March, which had been a, a protest led by black women years earlier in Philadelphia. Then women, a multiracial, multiracial coalition of women from other movements comes in, organizes a women's march. It forces the conversations about race, which I think are very crucial and healthy. In which I think forward. a lot of women who call themselves feminists had never been exposed to those conversations before. Right. Ever. And and Linda Sarsour, who is one of those organizers, said at the time to me and said in many places, contentious dialogue is by design. This goes back to an argument that Audre Lorde was making in the 80s that— it, Anger over racism within a feminist coalition must be expressed. It can be generative. It's the way to move it forward. This all happens in the lead up to the Women's March. The mainstream media covers this as women are tearing each other apart. The the Women's March is divided. It's going to be feminism can't hold together because of its racial divides. In fact, the expression of anger over those over racism within a women's movement was helping to move it forward. The Women's March itself, led by a multiracial coalition of progressive activists and organizers who insist on an interlocking set of 
progressive ideals that women are going to march under if they're going to participate in this, that it's not just going to be about choice. It's not just going to be about Donald Trump. It's going to be about reproductive justice, environmental racism. Um, domestic workers are there. I mean, this was, it was a truly progressive event. And it is the largest single day political protest in the country's history. It happens around the world. It's millions of people. And I went and I watched the mainstream coverage. Flinching, flinching, flinching. So the next morning on his Sunday show, George Stephanopoulos has Kellyanne Conway on for, I believe, a 17-minute interview. She brings up the... They, they talk about the crowd size, like Obama's inauguration ad nauseum. She has to bring up the Women's March several times, derisively, you know. But he doesn't even ask her about it. This massive, the biggest single-day political demonstration in the country's history held the day after the inauguration of her boss, who she's on there representing. He doesn't even ask her about the march until she mentions it for a third time. And then he says, what do you think about that march? And she says, oh, well, I think it was totally inappropriate. And they talk about how Madonna said she wanted to blow up the White House. So they wrap it all up as if the whole march was about Madonna saying she wanted to blow up the White House. They sort of toss it out. The next guest he has on is Chuck Schumer, who opens with, I went to the Women's March in New York, and George Stephanopoulos is question to him was, were you comfortable with everything you heard there? Mm. That was the question of political consequence that was asked of Chuck Schumer, was about whether he was comfortable at the Women's March, as if that was the political question to be asked about the biggest one-day protest in the country's history. And then Mark Halperin, okay, Monday okay. morning okay. on Morning Joe, okay. there's a conversation between Mika Brzezinski and Claire McCaskill about the Women's March. And uh, in which they talk about how the women are planning on running for office. Mm -hmm. Slightly uh, prophetic. Yeah. Slightly. I mean, you might, going back, you might you might think it were prophetic. Um, they talk about women running for office, wanting to organize, wanting to become activists. And productive is actually the other word I was going to use. Like, that's a productive conversation. It is. They were, they were having this conversation. Claire McCaskill was describing this. Mika Brzezinski was describing it. Mark Halperin, then a commentator on Morning Joe ducks in and says and asks of Claire McCaskill in a kind of, like, a sort of... Was it condescending? Could it be? Sickeningly condescending <laughs> tone. And he said, this is, a, this is a direct quote, if she could just be a notch more specific about what it was that these women were planning to do in the next week, not just running for school board down the line. That's a direct quote. You can look it up. So that, that was the tone that was being taken less than 48 hours after the biggest one-day political demonstration in the country's history. The, the political media was so dubious about the idea that the women who had organized this mass political demonstration, this is the same media that had covered Tea Party demonstrations and like guys in tricorn hats, with a sort of like, this is a nation-shaping movement for the for years. But they were so dubious about the political validity of women who had come by the millions onto streets in the United States and around the world um, that they just couldn't believe. Like, if they were going to run for something, it was probably going to be school board down the road. By the way, congratulations to all of them who did run for school board. And boards. school board is and, super uh, fucking important. Right, exactly. <laughs> Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? 
I wouldn't. And with Everlane, you never need to overpay for quality clothes. I have a few Everlane items. I kind of rotate them out from the seasons. This is cashmere season. I love their cashmere crew. It is the perfect weight for layering. That sounds, I feel like I sound like a like a women's fashion blog saying that. Um, but it is. And, and that actually sort of speaks to Everlane's aesthetic overall. Like their pieces are designed to fit in with the rest of your wardrobe. They are timeless, stylish basics. Uh, They don't scream trend. They just are great clothes. I do get compliments to them every once in a while, I have to say. People love the silk boxy shirt and also the day heel, which has a somewhat distinctive vamp on it, has a high vamp, which is the part that covers your toes. I did not know that until I started doing Everlane ads. Um, My husband loves the Twill Weekender bag. uh, Also the Slim Fit Jean. I like the Slim Fit Jean um, with the mid-rise. The mid-rise is kind of perfect uh, for not gaping at the back, but also not making me feel like a mom. And Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. They are radically transparent about every step in the process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. And they also sell directly to you. Their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, last longer, and cost less. Everlane's quality essentials are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from the finest materials. And right now, you can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com friends, and you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com friends for free shipping on your first order. Everlane.com friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by the new film, The Front Runner, from Oscar-nominated director Jason Reitman, who brought us Thank You for Smoking, Juno, and Up in the Air. The Front Runner is based on the shocking true events that changed the path of a nation. Oscar-nominated Hugh Jackman plays Gary Hart, the charismatic politician and overwhelming frontrunner for the 1988 presidential election. Senator Hart led George H.W. Bush in the polls by 13 points. Everyone was certain he would win, and then the world as we know it changed. The private scandal became front-page headlines for the first time. The Front Runner is about the turning point in American history when privacy ended. And we, as a country, decided we have the right to know. Written by Matt Bai and Jay Carson, this is the scandal and the story that started it all. Bush 1, Bush 2, the Clinton impeachment, our 17-year war in Afghanistan. It started with one scandal. Get involved and get your tickets to see The Front Runner. Text FRONTRUNNER to 26797. Message and data rates may apply. I want to say something, which is the consequences of this kind of coverage mm-hmm. that dismisses yeah. um, both the debates that are happening in within coalitions mm-hmm. and dismisses the progress that is made by those coalitions empowers white supremacy and patriarchy. Absolutely. And the thing that Trump is hearing from his TV, which is the only only mm-hmm. kind of political advice he listens right. to, is you were right. Mm-hmm. What you were doing worked, mm-hmm. and uh, he's going to think, and I, I should do more of it. He So people that are telling the story that there wasn't a blue wave, um, that Trump was, uh, you know, his, his strategy, which is not a strategy, but just racism, right. um, worked, mm-hmm. uh, they are doing harm to yeah. vulnerable communities because he are. will pursue policies that hurt people mm-hmm. more. I mean, he's already done it, but— like I, I mean, there's a consequence to this to this shit. Well, there's a. I wouldn't say it's even just a consequence. I would say it's part of the strategy. Yeah. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, this is part part of what the the book about women's anger that I just 
wrote published this one. Is, you just wrote, is about yeah. <laughs> is the is the ways in which women's anger in a political context in which it may take the form of protest or activism, organizing, raising one's voice or running for office or becoming civically engaged, the ways in which women's anger at injustice is discouraged, mocked, marginalized, vilified, that's especially true for women of color, it works to diminish the power of that dissent because it discourages women from dissent and raising their voices in anger brings them together, makes them audible to each other. That's part of what happens with the Women's March. That's part of what happens in organizing and the formation of coalitions. And those formations of coalitions, in theory, can work in part by voicing their anger both at the power structures that they're opposing and the power inequities within the coalitions um, to change I mean, the, the idea of voicing anger is in and and then working to do something about the thing that you're angry about is about changing the systems that oppress or subjugate you. But if you discourage or discount that anger and that dissent, then you quell the ability of those people to find each other and organize. And so it's not just that there's an that there's a kind of side effect of minimizing, writing off, not taking seriously. Um, the loud opposition of of women or more vulnerable people. And the victories, too. And the, again, oh, we, yes, we just exactly. rattled off a bunch of them that I had to, like, I feel like I'm pushing against a mountain sometimes. I You know, I'm, I'm privileged to be asked to give my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to, heard me this, like, I don't want to, I don't want to piss anybody off. Mm-hmm. You know, and don't, you don't want to sound crazy and I don't or want, I mean. Don't, yeah. So I, I, I try to strategize about how I say this stuff, mm-hmm. but it is infuriating. Yeah. To to try and make some to try and push against that narrative, and say there are voices there that that you are you are shutting down. Right. And when you shut them down, and again, I just want to, and it's short term thinking almost to talk about Trump, but like. When you shut those voices down, people, violence gets committed against people. Right. And I, I'm just, I'm fearful, you know. That we have every reason to be feel, fearful. This is every reason to be fearful. And with that, so. Um, <laughs> good talk. Good talk. <laughs> uh, I feel like we did do our rattling off all the victories. Yeah. And I also feel like actually it is incumbent upon us to not end on that note. Well, let's, so let's, because what we're talking about in part is this minimization of the victories, right? And that is deadening to the people who have been giving their, their blood, sweat, sweat, and and tears. tears. Um, And labor, I mean, labor, time. Having been on a book tour and talking to hundreds of people, most of them women, but not all, I have heard these families, you know, spend their families turned inside out in in political activism, um, jobs, you know, the kinds of sacrifices being made economically, the the funds that women, the the economic instability of devoting themselves to activism. And there, a lot of these women are talking to me about how they feel changed. They feel like 
new people, like they've been transformed by their activism. Many of them are telling me about relationships ending because they are so committed to to trying to change what they view as unjust. And part of what happens when you frame these inc- some of these incredible wins. I mean, look at what the the firsts that we're talking about, the improbable victories in states that anybody in the mainstream media would have told us were long shots, written off. Those, the people who did the work in Georgia, in Texas, and in Florida to get those historic candidates within a hair's breadth of winning those states, those were victories for those people who just spent their previous two years, and of course, in the case of many activists, their whole lives, doing the work to get us to these victories and these near victories. And when we simply write them off as, well, there was no blue wave, losers, like we discourage the continued engagement of these people who are changing the world and who changed the world on Tuesday for millions of voters and for all kinds of candidates who have become elected officials or who have who have entered the process as civic participants and and as as candidates and as protesters and as activists and who have been changed and we're telling them that that change doesn't matter but it did does because it is our only path forward the continued dedication to living a life transformed by civic responsibility is the only way we get out of this. And to tell people that those transformations were fundamentally worthless is a pernicious and harmful lie that is designed to to dull and deaden their potential to enact change going forward. And so we have to acknowledge that they that these efforts not only were not for naught, they are part of of the work of altering this country and and trying to push it to fulfill its unmet promises of equality, liberty, and participation. Don't let anyone tell you you didn't win. Don't let anyone tell you what your victory should or shouldn't be. Right. Like, we get we get to have these. Absolutely. And we did have them. We did have them. What we saw on Tuesday was remarkable. And on that note, I actually really thought that we're doing it. That is perfect. Everyone out there, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Get some sleep and then Monday, back at it. We have to keep working to expand the electorate and not rely on the white ladies anymore. (laughs) So hydrate, keep marching. Uh And everyone out there, please take care of yourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. 